Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Joshua 7. The last several weeks we have camped out here in our ongoing exposition of the book of Joshua because this chapter has so much to teach us as New Covenant Christians. You'll notice that this morning's sermon and this evening's sermon are parts of a whole. This morning when we looked at Peter teaching about the last judgment, he was speaking of judgment on the macro scale, the judgment, the final judgment. Tonight we'll be looking at a micro example of judgment and today, this morning, even though it pained me to do so, we said very little about the gospel. This evening we'll talk about the gospel as the answer to this. And I would remind you that these words that should guide our interpretation of this or any Old Testament narrative from 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says these things that we're reading about in Joshua 7, if you're tempted to think, this happened 3,400 years ago, what could this possibly have to do with me? We're never to look at the historical narratives of the Old Testament and say, interesting history, but no application for me. Paul tells us the hermeneutic that we're to bring to any Old Testament narrative, that we're to understand that these things were written for our sakes. And so they are highly applicable to us. Let's seek the help of the Lord now as we prepare to dive into this text. Our Father, we ask that you would send now your Holy Spirit in his fullness to open our eyes now that he would awake those who are sleeping, that he would arrest the attention of those whose minds are wandering. We ask that he would take this word which is true and living and active and teach us, that he might press home on our conscience the gospel and the gospel duty that you would have us to walk in today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. A little bit of context, and I want you to see some of the background First of all, our text for today, verses 13 through 18, and I hope you're zeroed in on that, and that is the certainty of wrath. We certainly saw that this morning, but perhaps you were able even to say, this is the wrath that Peter speaks of at the last judgment. It's something that's coming way down the road. I don't have to think about that for 30 or 40 years. I want you to notice the immediacy of wrath, of God's wrath. Look what he says, the Lord says to Joshua in verse 15. The Lord says, then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed fire shall be, accursed things shall be burned with fire. What God is telling Joshua is wrath will come. Judgment will fall. It's not an if, it's a when. The fact of God's wrath in this text, any time in history, is a certainty. This text is a microcosm of the larger truth that God has spoken repeatedly that he will always pour out his wrath on sin. And in this isolated incident, God says to Joshua in verse 15, here's what's going to happen, and then the Lord follows through. It's a certain thing. The second, in terms of the background context, note the objects of wrath. In verse 15, the Lord is very clear to spell out to Joshua and say, then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing. Before the fact of wrath, we hear God telling who the object of wrath will be. God knows exactly who the object of wrath is. It's not just some sort of indiscriminate, faceless mass. God is telling Joshua, I know who the person is that I have marked out. This one person who has sinned egregiously and who's unrepentant. And I want you to read this text very carefully because you'll be able to get inside the psyche of the man who's facing wrath and judgment, yet keeps on suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And I want to challenge you. As we look at Achan, who for some of you in this room is going to be mysterious, but for others you're going to say, oh, I can identify. 
Because this is what I do. I know that wrath is coming. I know that it's been promised. I know that my sin is egregious. I know that I haven't repented. Yet I'm going to go on living like nothing has ever happened. Look at verse 13 where God says to Joshua, Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There's an accused thing in your midst. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. What just happened in the narrative? God tells Joshua, get everybody in Israel together. As I've said, that's depending on which historian, which archaeologist, which Bible numerics expert you read. Israel at this time consists of somewhere between 2 and 5 million people. So the Lord says to Joshua, get the state of South Carolina together. Get them all together and set up by tribes in 12 units. Because tomorrow judgment is going to fall and and it's going to be a display of God's knowledge and his omniscience. There's an accursed thing in your midst. So Joshua does that. He tells the nation that. Achan hears that. Achan is gathered with the people of God when he hears there's an accursed thing in their midst. And tomorrow judgment's going to come. God had told Joshua, if you look at verse 13, to tell the nation to consecrate themselves and be ready for what was happening. Consecrate yourselves mean engage in repentance. Achan heard this with his family and his children. Do you think that Achan went home to his tent that night and bounced his children on his knee and said, tomorrow you'll die with me. He had an evening and a morning after being warned. Do you think he slept that night? He still wouldn't come clean and confess his sin. He had stolen And now he's been told to consecrate himself. That would certainly involve repentance and restoration. Not going to do it. He's stubborn in holding on to his sin. And notice then the method of wrath. Look at verse 15. We are told that the one who has been caught with the stolen goods is to be burned with fire. In Leviticus 20, this is the method of how God tells Israel to purge out their wickedness, to burn off the dross, and look exactly at what happens. Now, I realize we're getting ahead of ourselves, but just peek across the page at verse 25 and 26 in Joshua 7. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned him with fire after they had stoned him with stones. That's a picture. A foreshadowing of that eternal wrath, that eternal burning that God will pour out on all who are unrepentant in their sin. This morning we heard the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4-5 speaking of the last judgment. And we were told of the greater Joshua of Jesus that he's ready. He's been ready now for 1,990 years. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And we heard that Jesus will judge all men. That was the macro version of judgment. This is the micro version, judgment on one man and one house. Now notice the reason for God's wrath. It's not arbitrary. The reason for wrath is always the exact same thing. It's never any different. It's sin. Look at verse 15 where the Lord says, It shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. In other words, the wrath of God never falls arbitrarily. It always falls on sin. Now, what's the process? The process itself is the sort of thing that is is 
a screenplay for a movie because you need music in the background that's, that's getting louder and louder. In verse 14 through 18, you see the process of how Achan is discovered. Look at verse 14. The Lord says, you shall be brought according to your tribe. And so if we do the math, each tribe has somewhere between 150,000 people and 400,000 people in it. And so God has this winnowing factor, tribe by tribe, then by a family in the tribe, then by a household in the family, and then the wrath of God will rest upon a man. So we're told in verse 16, that's exactly what happens the next day. Joshua brings Israel by their tribes, and we're not told the exact method. Perhaps the lot is cast, or perhaps God gives Joshua direct revelation. Those are probably the two best options, either the casting of the lot or through direct revelation. We don't know exactly. I would surmise it's probably the lot being cast. But as the tribes are brought before Joshua, first of all, the tribe of Judah is singled out. And so somewhere close between 2 million and 5 million people are, are now, they breathe a sigh of relief and they can stand by and watch. And now we have just this group of 150 to 200,000 people. As the whole tribe of Judah is gathered, next the lot falls on a family. Look at verse 17. It's the family of the Zarites. Then as the whole family of the Zarites, this clan, are gathered, you have one household. And so slowly the whole nation is being winnowed out. You have one household, the, how, the patriarch of the household, Zabdi. And now all the eyes of Israel are watching, some two to five million people. And they're looking, could it be him? No, I, I bet it's him. And there are 36 people especially watching, the widows, who are there grieving, still in their grief, the women whose husbands didn't come home from the battle of Ai because they were killed. And their children are watching very carefully. The lot is cast, or the Holy Spirit gives direct revelation, and Joshua now walks past all the other members of the household of Zabdi. He comes to a stop, and he stares into the face of Achan. The lot has fallen on one man. That's how the narrowing down has happened from the nation to the tribe to the family to the household to the man. And notice the duty of judgment and Joshua's immediate compliance. This is something, by the way, that marks out a true leader in the family of God. Joshua doesn't try to shirk the duty of judgment. Look in verse 16 what he does. And this is a model for all rulers of the people of God. We're told Joshua rose early in the morning. He's getting up early. He knows it's going to be a difficult task. He wants to comply quickly and completely. We don't hear him say to the Lord, can I put it off until tomorrow? Can we wait another day? Can I have a motion to postpone? He's a model for every godly leader that they must be quick to address sin. And so Joshua's up early and gets about the business of addressing sin. I've been chomping at the bit to do this since this morning. Let me preach Christ for a moment. Because in preaching Christ, we don't preach Christ rightly if we just preach him in his office as Savior. We're to look at this text like we look at every other text in the Bible and say, how does this text point to Christ in all his offices? Prophet, priest, king, creator, redeemer, judge. In this moment, Joshua as he's commanded to be about the duty of judgment the next day, he rises early in compliance. And he's a picture of the greater Joshua, the Joshua to come in that moment. 
as he absolutely, joyfully, immediately, completely obeys. Isn't that a faint picture of how the greater Joshua, Jesus, lives for 33 years? You remember what Jesus said in John 8, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. And in this moment, Joshua is a dim reflection of that as he gets up early and he gets about the business of obeying God's command. He's a picture of the greater Joshua in that the lesser Joshua is appointed as a judge over sinners. He's a type, a foreshadowing of the one who will be the judge of all sinners. Now, I want to show you the the greater Joshua in his fullness. This is the lesser Joshua who's just judging one person. Look at the greater Joshua in his judgment. Look at Acts 17 with me. And notice how this type is fulfilled. In Acts 17, Paul is preaching on Mars Hill in Athens. And he's preaching to perhaps the most intellectual gathering of people who have ever ever been gathered in one place to hear the gospel preached. He's preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill in Athens. And Paul knows what's going to happen when he says this. And of course it does. He knows this, that he will be laughed out of Athens as soon as he says it. But he has to say it. He has to preach Christ in all his offices. And so look at how he preaches Christ. Acts 17.30, Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day, a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained, and he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So instead of the lesser Joshua judging one man, Paul says the greater Joshua, he will judge the world in righteousness. God has appointed his judge. It's the greater Joshua. But here on this day, the lesser Joshua is a foreshadowing, an accurate one, of the one who will come and judge all rebels against God. Now take a step back from the text for a moment and let's ask it some theological questions. Not only does every text in Scripture speak of Christ, not only should we go from every text in the Scripture as soon as we can to Christ and say, what does this teach us about Christ as Savior, prophet, or priest, or king, or judge? We should also ask every text, what does the text teach us about God? How does it inform our worship, our knowledge of God, and our prayer? So look at the text and notice several things this text is teaching us about God. As I said this morning, our doctrines are built on texts. We don't just grab our doctrines out of the air and say, this seems like this would be a good doctrine of God. No, our doctrines are built on biblical text. And first of all, this text, Joshua 7, teaches the truth that God is omniscient. This means that God has never learned anything. He has always known all things. If there's ever a thing that God was ignorant of, then he wouldn't be omniscient. Nothing is outside of his exhaustive knowledge. The psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You've known my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought from afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Do you hear what the psalmist says? He says, God even knows. How many times you sat down and got up yesterday? Let me ask you, how many times did you sit up and get down yesterday? I started thinking about this this morning. I thought, I think it was 19. And you probably thought, no, Carl, just during the OU game, you got up and down 19 times. Well, in my case, I I really can't remember. But God knows. 
According to Psalm 139, he's acquainted with your every sitting down and your rising up. And that's just a symbol of everything that God knows about you. You can't hide from one who knows everything you do. God is omniscient. He knows all. And then to add to that, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And this text teaches us that Achan thinks he's been able to sin and do something that's outside the purview of God, outside the sight and knowledge of God. This is a case where bad theology is deadly. But what Achan finds out, as the lot progressively keeps narrowing down, 11 tribes done away, several clans done away, all the household done away with him. Now he's standing there in front of millions in Israel. And Joshua's pointing to him and saying, as Nathan said to David, you're the man. He can't hide even one sin from God. And neither can you. This text shows us the omniscience of God. That you can't do something that's outside the knowledge of God. I'm quite certain in a room this size tonight, there's someone who thinks, Carl, I've done it. I've pulled it off. The perfect crime, whether it's that theft, that sexual sin, that affair, Carl, no one knows. I've been able to conceal it from my wife, my children, my boss, the cops. My friend, you do disservice to God's omniscience and omnipresence. He sees and he knows. The second thing this text teaches us about God is it shows us God's absolute holy hatred and despising of all sin. Holy is who God is. Remember, that's what the angels who encircle the throne say about him. They don't say sovereign, 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 omniscient, 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 love, love, love. What do they say as they encircle the throne? Holy, holy, holy. To be holy, he doesn't conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that's incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all his attributes are holy. His wrath is a holy wrath. His joy is a holy joy. Whatever we think of as belonging to God, it must be thought of as holy. God is holiness, and he's made holiness the moral condition necessary to the health of his world. Sin is temporary presence in this world only accents this truth. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must always end in death. Since God's first concern for his universe is its moral health, its holiness, whatever is contrary to this necessarily is under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God will destroy whatever would tear down his creation. When he arises to put down iniquity and save the world from moral collapse, he is said to be angry. Every wrathful judgment in the history of the world has been a holy act of preservation. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. God hates sin like a mother hates disease that would take the life of her child. What this text shows us is God's holy hatred for sin. Never soft pedal sin. Never say, it's just a little sin. It's just a white lie. It was just a, a brief affair and a fling. It's a victimless sin. We as believers need to have our antenna up high. We need to have our moral barometer working where we see sin for what it is and hate it the way God does. 
And this text shows us God's absolute abhorrence of sin. The third thing this text teaches us is God's absolute sovereignty. Whether it's the lot that's cast four, five, twenty times, if that's the method by which Achan is found out. And Achan, perhaps he's not a Calvinist, and so he keeps thinking as the lot is cast, Ooh, bad luck! The lot fell on my tribe. Ooh, worse luck! It fell on my clan and then on my household. You'll remember what Proverbs 16 says about God's sovereignty. Even the lot, when it's cast into the lap, its every return is from the Lord. Whether it's the lot that's cast 20 times or whether it's the Holy Spirit who reveals to Joshua, God's sovereignty marks out unerringly, pointing to the right man. There is no such thing as chance. Achan, by the time Joshua stands in front of him and looks in his face, Achan knows he didn't just have an unlucky day. He knows that God has sovereignly marked him out and found him and exposed him. A fourth thing this text teaches us about God is God's office of lawgiver must be taken seriously. He wants his prohibitions to be followed. How often have you just waved your hand when somebody said, that is completely counter to God's revealed moral law? Or, that's a lie, and God has said his wrath is poured out on all lies and liars. Well, this is the Lord's day, and you're just blowing it off. (sighs) Legalist. That's covetousness, and you're making it of no effect. That's fear and worry, and you don't even recognize that it's wicked. God wants to, listen to me carefully. He wants to. He demands that his laws be followed and obeyed. He'll not have people thinking they can sin against him with impunity. And this points up the holiness of God's office as lawgiver. Now think about the scene. Let me transport you back to where we were. To the day where Achan is standing outside of Jericho with somewhere between 2 and 5 million people. Every eye on him. No one is looking anywhere else except at Joshua and Achan. I always tell couples when I'm going to do their wedding, I always tell the grooms, Guys, it doesn't matter what you do. Your, your zipper can be undone. Your tie can be to the side. Your hair can be looking goofy because nobody's going to look at you anyway. I've said, well, okay, I'll correct that. They're going to look at you for three seconds. They're going to look at you when the door opens, the back door opens, and the bride comes through. Everybody in the room, it's, it's, it's so predictable. Everybody in the room turns and looks at the groom for three seconds because they won't see that look on his face. So I've told grooms, practice and do that when you see the the bride. But I said, you'll watch. You'll watch. They will look at you for three seconds, and they'll turn back, and they will stare at the bride. Everybody, especially little girls, they're staring at the bride, all eyes on her. And a wedding is, is the place where you see everyone's attention solely focused on one person. And that's exactly what you have multiplied by a million On this day with Achan, no one is looking anywhere else except at Achan and Joshua. And everyone is straining to hear the conversation that happens between them. And as Joshua progresses, the crowd grows smaller and smaller in front of him. And finally, it's down to just the two of them. The crowd presses in. The eyes of all Israel are upon Achan. The eyes especially of all those widows are burning a hole through Achan, whose husband died just a few days earlier at Ai. The eyes of all those children who are now without a father, 
Can you feel a, a twinge of their anger mixed with grief thinking? This man's selfish sin caused the ruin and impoverishing of our household. As the hour for that assembly approached, was Achan fearful or defiant? Was he pacing the floor over his stolen goods? Or was he sitting calmly? We don't know, and so to say would be speculation, but we do know this, the most important thing. He chose to remain silent about his sin. He heard that judgment was imminent, that God's wrath was about to fall, and he did nothing. He remained mute. How do we apply this text to us tonight? Let me make three important applications. The first is very clear. God has now given everyone in this room notice that sin will be exposed and judged. You heard it this morning, and now again this evening. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We're told by Jesus in Mark 4 that nothing that is now hidden will not be revealed. We're told in Romans 2 that God will bring everything to light. The day is fixed on God's calendar. On that day, you'll not be able to melt into the crowd and lose yourself in the teeming throng of humanity. There will be nowhere to hide and to escape. You will have to stand face to face eye to eye with the greater Joshua. Just as Achan wished that day that he could melt back into the family or the clan and God found him out. We'd like to deal with generalities when it comes to judgment, wouldn't we? But on that day, sinners will be singled out and stand before the judge and Christ will look them in the eye. Just as the lesser Joshua looked Achan in the eye. And all men will hear the sentence after they give an account. And so what I would plead with you is you've now been given biblical notice. Just as Achan was told, tomorrow judgment will come. You've now been told that God has fixed a day. Just because judgment doesn't immediately follow your sin, don't fool yourself into thinking it will never come. Perhaps you're right now comforting yourself this way. I won't be exposed to my sin. I'm so stealthy. I'll not be caught. Listen to God's wisdom in Proverbs 28. He who covers his sin will not prosper. You may think you've gotten away with something, but there's a payday someday and you'll be exposed. A great deal of my calling as pastor is to be adept at warning the flock. Warning the flock of what lies ahead. Warning them if they pursue a certain lifestyle or doctrine, what they'll reap. And so I want to say, as formally as I can, you've been warned. Judgment awaits those who are unrepentant. But now what I've been waiting to say all day, I want to make this hopeful application. There is mercy for all who confess their sin and repent. Listen to the second half of Proverbs 28. I just quoted the first half a moment ago. He who confesses his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. That's the hope of the gospel. There's hope for sinners. That hope is to repent of your sin, to lay it down and say, I hate my sin. I'm not going to hide it in the closet anymore. I'm going to bring my sin out into the light. I'm going to be my own accuser. I'm going to set it before God and say, here's my sin. I want Christ to be my substitute. I want him to atone for my sin. And in disgust and hatred, I want to turn away from my sin. Lord, there's been a separation between me and you. But now I want to be reconciled. Listen carefully to what Jesus tells you to do. 
I'm not going to demean it by saying he tells you to just ask Jesus into your heart. That's not the answer. Those words never appear in the scripture. Here's what he tells you. Here's what he said in his, the first recorded gospel message we know of from Mark 1.15. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't be hardened any longer in your defiance. Today is the day of salvation. Don't hide in your tent another day like Achan just saying, maybe judgment won't fall after all. Turn from your sin. You'll find mercy. Christ opens his arms wide tonight and says, the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Perhaps right now you're saying, Carl, you don't know what I've done. My hidden sin has been so heinous and so wicked. Probably on 13 or 14 occasions in the last 35 years of pastoral ministry, I've had conversations, even some here, with women who have come to me who say, Carl, I, I don't think God will save me because I had an abortion 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And those have been the most joyous occasions when I've been able to say to people, well, Moses killed a man and God forgave him and used him. David killed a man and had an adulterous affair with his wife and God forgave him and used him. God receives and forgives sinners. Repent and know his welcome. And to see people who have thought that they were in the bondage of their own sin, that their sin was somehow the unpardonable sin, be released from that guilt. That's what I hold out and offer to you tonight. That sin that you've been hiding and you think you have it buried in the tent and no one will ever know, but that sin, the guilt of it is gnawing at your soul. You can know forgiveness tonight. A third application. Believer, let me endear Christ to you all the more tonight. Your Jesus was publicly marked out and scourged and humiliated. He was made an Achan so that you'll not be. Now in the case of Achan, it was just, it was right. The fact that God's wrath and condemnation should come upon him, it was right because he was an unrepentant sinner. But in the case of the Lord Jesus, we see the same treatment. He's treated just like Achan. He's singled out. He's publicly humiliated, he's mocked, he's scourged, he's murdered, and yet he doesn't have one sin. Why? For you. He took your scourging. He took your mocking. He took your humiliation. We would have thought it strange if in our narrative today that we read that Joshua, after exposing him, would have shoved Achan out of the way and said to the crowd, stone me, I'll take his place. But that's exactly what the greater Joshua has done. He has pushed us out of the way and said, no, murder me. I'll take death for the chief of sinners. I'll take their scourging. I'll take their nails. I'll take their humiliation. I'll take their separation from the Father. I'll take the wrath of God for them. My friends, doesn't this endear Christ to you all the more? That you deserve the wrath of the Father, but Christ has borne every drop of it for you. Brothers and sisters, praise your Christ tonight. Thank him that he has taken your deserved wrath and borne every one of your stripes. Let's pray together. Oh Christ, how we thank you that you have taken our judgment, that you have taken the wrath of God for us. And now, Lord, we especially pray tonight for those who are here in rebellion, who are hiding sin, who are enemies of yours. 
we ask that you would expose their sin, bring them to the light, that they might repent and flee to Christ alone. But, O Father, we ask that you would endear now Christ to us all the more, that we would love him deeply for his becoming an Achan for us, for his taking our scourging, our wrath, our mockery, our exposure, our humiliation, our condemnation. O Father, how we love the Son that you've given for us. We pray in Jesus' name.